Well, it's lovely to see your smiling faces today, and uh, I'm looking forward to unpacking the Word of God for you today. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, I shared a message called Poor Excuses, and uh, used as my text the statement that Jesus made where he said, the poor you will always have with you, which has uh, occasionally been interpreted as a poor excuse uh, in other words, not to help the poor, all right? It's like, oh, well, the poor will always be here, so why bother to help them? Because we're always going to have them. And so should we make sure that we always do have poor people, let's not help them. So it's been used as a poor excuse. Um, but that's not what the Scripture is really meaning. So in that statement in the Gospels, when Jesus says to, uh, to the people, you know, the poor you will always have with you, is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11, which talks about the poor... And uh, if I read that to you, it says, there will always be poor people in the land. And it's on the basis of that, therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those who are poor and needy. So this is not an excuse not to help the poor. It's actually encouragement too. So the poor are always going to be here. So you always have an opportunity to relieve poverty. And so over the last few weeks, and uh, today is our last weekend, uh, we've been receiving uh, offerings for our Home and Away ministries. You're going to see a, a video a little bit later in the service on that. Uh, some of the projects that we have around the Bayside area, as well as projects in uh, Indonesia, as well as South Africa, where we are, as a church community, directly relieving poverty. And so toward the end of this gathering, I'm going to be receiving a special offering for Home and Away and also giving you the opportunity to pledge a monthly amount above your regular tithes and offerings if you want to specifically help our Home and Away projects and relieve poverty. Today I want to teach you on the faithfulness of God and a beautiful quality of God's nature. So if you're looking for message notes, you'll find them online. The uh, best way to access them is through our Bayside Church app. If you haven't downloaded the app already, then I encourage you to do so. You simply go into the App Store and you search Bayside Church Melbourne. You download the app and then if you click on the media button at the bottom, it will bring up both the Cheltenham and Frankston weekly message notes and you will find notes there. Alternatively, you can take your own. If you are taking your own notes, the title of the message is God is Faithful. And I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read the first 13 verses of this uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, which finishes in verse 13 with this wonderful statement, such an encouraging statement about the faithfulness of God. And so 1 Corinthians 10, we'll pick it up at verse 1. And the apostle says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they've all passed through the sea. He's talking about the people of Israel, led through the desert by fire at night, cloud during the day, and of course they all passed through the Red Sea. Verse 2 is fascinating. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This time last week, we had a baptism at the sea. Um, typically, it was the coldest uh, Sunday or the coldest day of summer because it always is. It's like this divine conspiracy. It's bizarre. You know, we announce a beach baptism and it's like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit sitting in heaven going, look at this. Watch what we're going to do to Rob Buckingham. 
<laughs> Let's have some fun. Let's give him a freezing cold day with uh, very strong winds. And I, was, uh, I baptized four people and seriously think we were all baptized before the person actually went down into the water. You don't know how hard it is to say, according to the profession of your faith in Jesus, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while a wave whacks you right in the back. It's like, oh, took my breath away. But anyway, we got there, and it was a wonderful occasion. And, and I just love seeing people following Jesus uh, and, and making that as a public statement of their desire to follow him uh, through full immersion, baptism. Uh, the people of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The word baptized means to fully immerse. It literally means to dip. It was a, a word that was used in Bible days of the dyeing of cloth. So I want you to imagine a piece of cloth, doesn't matter what color it is or maybe no color at all, and then it's taken and it's fully immersed into dye. And when it comes out, it is totally transformed. It is it is different to the way it was before. And that's a wonderful picture, is it not, of what baptism is. So, you know, when you go into the water and you come out again, it is a sign of transformation. The people of Israel were baptized into Moses. In other words, they, they were baptized as followers of Moses by the cloud and through the sea. When they passed through the Red Sea, they came out the other side. The sea closed in behind them. Their enemies were destroyed, and they were cut off from the past. They were cut off from slavery. They were cut off from Egypt. And over the process of time, they embraced a new promised land. That is a magnificent picture of what has happened to each and every one of us who have been baptized. If you've never been baptized by full immersion, sign up for the next one. If you have been baptized, remind yourself of that truth on a regular basis. I am brand new. I am not the person I used to be. I am cut off from slavery. I'm no longer a slave to sin or to the flesh or to the devil. I've been cut off from that, and I am fully embracing a new and promised land that God has for me because of His faithfulness. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, manna. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And in the next few verses, uh, Paul goes through four sins that he wants us to particularly watch out for in life. Because he said, and he's using these as examples from the Old Testament, what happened to these people when they got involved in these sins. And he says, be careful that you don't get entangled in these things as well. And so in verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. Now, an idolater is not someone that just worships an idol uh, like of uh, stone or wood. Idolatry is when we put anything above God. If anything becomes more important to us than our relationship with the Lord, then that becomes an idol in our life. Invariably, something really, really good. And it's fine as long as it doesn't take precedence over our relationship with him. And so don't be idolaters as some of as them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. 
Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, you know, and if you think, well, I'm not an idolater, I've never committed sexual immorality, and, you know, I don't really test Jesus, then, then number four is for all the rest of us, right? Anyone here ever had a really good grumble other than me? You know, yes, I'm glad I'm in good company. The rest of you are so holy, aren't you? <laughs> I have a good old grumble and a good old whinge occasionally. Do not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. Now, I don't believe that God has an angel that's out to kill people every time we grumble. But we are being warned here by their example that we shouldn't engage in those activities. These things happen to them as examples. They were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And there's this wonderful promise that caps this whole thing off. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Let's say those three words together. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I want to share with you in the time that we have together today three areas where God is faithful in our lives. He connects with faithfulness. The first of them is based on that last verse that we just read in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that God is faithful to free us from temptations and trials. Now, the Greek word uh, for, for temptations in 1 Corinthians 13 means both of those things, temptations and trials. A temptation is anything that entices us to sin. It is not sin. Sometimes when you feel enticed to sin and, and, and it kind of keeps going and keeps enticing you and bombarding you, sometimes you feel like you have sinned. When, you, when you're going through this prolonged time of of, of bombardment and, and enticement, you feel a bit grubby. And it's important at that time to remind yourself, I'm enticed to sin, but I haven't sinned. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, and yet He did not sin. So remind yourself of that truth. Temptation is not sin. Trials refer to any difficult or tough time that we go through. We've all faced temptations. We've all faced trials. And at those times, it's important for us to remind ourselves of that truth we just read. No temptation, no trial has overtaken us except what is common to mankind, common to the human race. Right there is a point of victory for us, because if you're anything like me, when you're facing temptation, or if you're facing difficult or tough times in life, it's very easy to isolate yourself and to feel like you're the only one, correct? It's in isolation. You, 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 you decide to throw a pity party, and, and you just invite yourself, right? Because you, you want to enjoy it on your own, yeah? You, you don't want other people to enjoy that with you. You just want you just, my pity party, and I'll have this on my own. Thank you very much. And you're in isolation. You feel like you're the only one. I'm the only one that's going through this. Elijah was like this in the Old Testament. He was having all these great victories, and then Jezebel rose up against him, 
And, and this, this man of faith and power became a, main, a man of paste and flour, you know. He just became this big wuss, you know, a little bit like Jimmy having a late night at nine o'clock. So you've got a day off on the Monday, so you can sleep in. Whoa! I love that. Eh? Yeah, I know that's his day off anyway. That's a bit of a bummer, isn't it? It really is. You should you should have another day off that week. Yeah, just 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 have a chat with the boss. I'm sure he'll be nice to you. That's right. I've got next Monday off too, and it's also my birthday, which I'm really excited about having a day off for my birthday. I must thank. Um, whoever it is. I don't want to labour the point, though. <laughs> so Elijah felt like this, right? He's in the desert, and he's having a pity party, and he's going, I'm the only one. And God taps him on the shoulder, and he says, by the way, there's 7,000 others. Not the only one at all. I'm not the only one facing this. That's our point of victory. When you're going through a difficult time, when you're feeling tempted, I'm not the only one facing this. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's everyone else faces the same thing. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In the original language, the expression there, a way out, means an exit, an escape route. It also means to move forward or to march. And I think there's a really important truth there because it's so easy to camp in the difficulty and just feel sorry for ourselves and isolate ourselves. But when we're in those times, you say, I'm just going to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm just going to keep moving forward. I'm just going to keep marching forward because I will get out of this. There's a way of escape. In the original language, there's actually this magnificent picture and I want you to imagine this today. It's like someone is, is, is in a canyon. There's a, a steep cliff on both sides and the enemy is encroaching and you're moving forward. And then in front of you, you see that there's been a landslide and the, and, and the way out has been blocked and you think, I'm doomed for sure. But just at the last moment, off to the side, you see this little crag in the rock which is big enough for you to escape through. That's what the picture is in the original Greek language. It's a way of escape. It's an escape route, an exit as you continue to move forward. You move out from under the temptation or trial, and then you finally arrive at a new desirable destination that is the Lord's successful outcome that He has planned all along for you because God is faithful. But... What if we collapse under the temptation? What if we give in and fall under the trial? Well, there's good news. God is faithful. Number two, God is faithful to forgive us of sin. In 1, in 1, 1 John, in chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Anyone seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. What a great movie. Isn't that good? That's just like one of my all-time favorite films. If you haven't seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding, 
please go and watch it because it's a lot of fun. You'll have a big belly laugh and, 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 and it really is a lot of fun. Mr. Portacollis is the dad and, uh, and he's highly embarrassing, something I never am to my children. You know? Actually, I was the other day. I was walking into, I, I, I drive the, school, uh, the kids to school um, uh, as many mornings a week as I can. And uh, I took Trinity into school the other day. And we'd been listening to music on the way to school. And the tune was kind of stuck in my head. And so as we were walking into the school, I was singing the song, which to a nine-year-old apparently is embarrassing. I had no idea. I thought, I sing in tune. I'm all right. Her friends will love me singing this pop song, you know. And having a bit of a groove. And then, so Trinity's next to me and she's kind of banging me on the, on, on, on said, Dad, could you stop singing? Said, Why? She says, Dad, it's embarrassing. So I actually, I did stop singing. You'll be glad to know because I don't want to embarrass my kids. But Mr. Portacollis from my big fat Greek wedding had no filter and no radar for embarrassment. And so he's got his daughter in the front seat of the car and two of her friends in the back, and they're driving along, and Mr. Portacollis is saying, give me an English word, and I will show you where that word is from the Greek. And so he says, for example, take the word arachnophobia. It comes from... Greek word arachna, meaning spider, and phobia, or phobos. Greek word meaning fear. There we have it. Fear of spider. Give me any English word, and I will show you where it is from the Greek. Isn't that right? And off it goes from there. They're absolutely delightful. So, I want to give you a Greek root word this morning. And it's the word confess, because it says here, if we confess our sins. Now, when you think about that in English, the word confess always has to do with our words, does it not? And so, this is actually not a great translation of the Greek root word, because it really has nothing to do with speaking. It has everything to do with our attitude. And so, the Greek root word is homologia or homologia, depending on what shul you went to. And it means to agree with and to come to the same conclusion as. To agree with or to come to the same conclusion as. Think about this for a moment. When we sin, all God is asking is that we don't cover it up and that we don't deny it and we don't pretend we haven't done it or we don't try and say it wasn't wrong. Because we know when we've done the wrong thing, all God is asking for is our honesty it's just like, you know, my own kids, those of you who are parents, you know this. You, you, when your kids have done the wrong thing, you know they've done the wrong thing. And all you want them to do is not cover it up and lie about it and minimize it or pretend it wasn't wrong. Before we were married, Christy was living with a family that, that come to our Cheltenham campus, and uh, there was a little boy now who's now one of our young adults at, at church, but um, he, he was very quiet on one occasion, and, and Christy and the lady of the house were having a bit of a chat, and then they suddenly realized that the little boy was very, very quiet, and so they call him, and he comes into the lounge, and his face is covered with lipstick. And he just stands there. He must have been about two, and he just looks at his mum and goes... I haven't been playing with your lipstick, mummy. But the evidence was there for all to see. And so all his mum wanted was him to fess up because we knew. 
And, and it's like, no, no, Sam, you have been, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have actually, yeah. And that's what this Greek root word means, homologia. It means to agree with or to come to the same conclusion as. When God, as our heavenly Father, says that something is wrong and we've done that wrong thing, the word confess means, God, yep, I've done the wrong thing. I agree with you. I come to the same conclusion as you. In 1 John 1, if you look at the verses either side of verse 9, verses 8 and verse 10, it actually brings this truth to bear. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God, if we come to the same conclusion as God about our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. And so when we agree with God, when we come to the same conclusion as God regarding our sins, then God is faithful and just and He will do two things. Number one, He will forgive us of our sins. Forgiveness is a really important word, and it literally means to remove the penalty from. So when we break a law, we deserve to be punished. Is that right? That's called justice. Um, uh, But the same with us. You know, like when when someone does the wrong thing to us, the Bible says to forgive them, uh, which simply means that we relinquish our right to get even with that person. If you're like me, if if, if you get hurt, then, then your first reaction is, you've hurt me, I want to get you back. And so when I bring forgiveness in, all I say is this, you've hurt me and I choose not to get you back. It doesn't mean that I forget it, doesn't mean that I put myself into the same situation again, uh, doesn't mean any of those things, but it, what it does mean is I relinquish my right to get even. Justice has been done because Jesus has actually taken our punishment on the cross through His death and resurrection. And so what God does when we come to the same conclusion as Him about our sin, He just says, I forgive you, I'm not going to punish you, I'm not going to discipline you, that's been placed on Jesus, I give you freedom. And so that's the first thing He does when we agree with Him. And the second thing He does is, it says here, He will purify us from all unrighteousness. The word purify there is from the Greek root word, Katharos. Now, I wonder if you can think of an English word that we might get from katharos. Someone said it? Cathartic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you are sitting there going, I know it's cathartic, but I don't want to say it just in case it's wrong. But you were right. Cathartic. When you have a cathartic moment, something's changed. If you're feeling a bit flat, if you're feeling a bit down, and then you catch up with some friends and you go and watch a, a comedy movie, for example, you come out of that couple of hours feeling completely different to the way you went into it. You were feeling flat, you're feeling a bit kind of down or a bit depressed, and now you've, you've spent time with friends and you've had a good belly laugh and then you feel better, right? That's cathartic. That's a catharos moment. Sometimes, you know, when you, you're feeling sad, and, and then you have, a, you have a good cry, and then afterwards you feel better. It's a catharos. It's a cathartic moment where your emotions have been purged. And that's what catharos means here. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. He will purge us from unrighteousness. He will get rid of it. 
He will completely cleanse us, purify us, and He declares us to be innocent. This is wonderful truth because God is faithful. He forgives us, no punishment, and then He cleanses us, no record. So you could have this discussion with God, oh, I've just done it again. Done what again? Oh, you know, that thing I keep coming to you and telling you that I've done and I ask for your forgiveness, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Oh, I've done it again, God. You've done what again? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful truth? See, because we drag it up and we beat ourselves over the head with it and then we try and kind of feel guilty all over again and yet God says, no, 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 you've done the right thing. You've agreed with me. You've come to the same conclusion. I've forgiven you. I've cleansed you. It's been purged. It doesn't exist any longer. You are in right relationship with God because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a great place of victory to live in. So God is faithful to free us from temptations and trials. God is faithful to forgive us of our sin. And then thirdly and finally, God is faithful to fulfill His promises. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. Unswervingly. In other words, you're not looking around, you're not looking behind, you're just looking straight ahead. You're not driving while looking at your mobile phone. You're driving and you're looking straight ahead. Isn't that right? Not swerving off. And you're looking to Jesus. And, and, and it says here, we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Hope has always got to do with the future. If, if, you're, if you've already got something, you're not hoping for it anymore. You know, years ago, I hoped to be married and then that came true. And then Christy and I hoped that we would have children, and that's happened. And we have three beautiful girls. Now I hope we don't have any more. Because oh. <laughs> seriously, three is plenty. And uh, so you only hope for something if it's in the future. And so Paul says here, we hold unswervingly to the hope we professed. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Hope. There's, there, there's a really important truth here. It's a little side sermon for you. This, this has to do with, especially speaking into the culture of the day, which has to do so often with instant gratification. You know, I want it all now. I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. Instant. We expect it now. And yet the Bible to, always talks about hope. In other words, there's this kind of waiting period. And, and God is faithful to fulfill His promises. Now, sometimes when we pray... God answers straight away. Sometimes He answers before we even pray. I've had situations in my own life where I've kind of thought, maybe I need to formulate a prayer about this and then find the answers have already happened. But more often than not, there's a promise and a prayer and then a waiting period and then the answer takes place. And it's important because in that gap, maturity and character are formed, and you can't get that if you got everything now. You ever met families where the kids get everything now? Yeah, all right. Yeah, I love that reaction, Daniel. Oh. Seriously, they are the people you have around to your home once because the kids are feral. We've had some families around our place over the years like that, and seriously, they come once. The kids come in. I remember one family, and the kids were jumping on the couch. 
And I said, seriously? I said, what are you doing? And, and, the, and the parents said, oh, we have an old couch at home. And I said, I don't care whether your couch is old or new. I said, the fact is that your kids can't even determine or dif- uh, spot the difference between an old couch and a new one. So we just say to our kids, you actually never jump on a couch. Beds are for sleeping on, not jumping on. You know? and, and so they were like this two-man demolition squad that came once to our place many years ago, and now we meet them at a park. God wants his kids to be mature. And, and so invariably there's the promise and a waiting period and the solution. Uh, the Hebrews writer puts it this way in chapter 6 and verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he goes on to talk about Abraham and Sarah and what a wonderful example of faith and patience and hope they were most of the time. They had their moments. And so Abraham was 75. God says to him, you're going to have a son. And, and that would have been a miracle right in itself because his wife was not able to have children. She was about 10 years younger than him. So she was 65 and barren. He was 75, you know, and maybe it was possible at that particular point in time. And God waited for 25 years before the fulfillment. In other words, he waited until not just the wife was barren, but also Abraham was then not able to father children. And that's where the miracle took place. And they waited for 25 years. And if you read it in the Old Testament, you'll find out that sometimes they were strong in faith and and they looked forward in hope. And at other times they were weak in faith and they tried to make it all happen themselves. When God first announced the promise, Sarah laughed. One day you're going to have a son and Sarah cracks up laughing and God says, you just laughed. And she goes, no, I didn't. So she lied as well as laughed. And God said, yes, you did. Moral of the story is don't argue with God because he will always win. Almost 25 years later, 24 years later, God says to Abraham, next year you're going to have a son. He's 99 and you can read it in the Bible. He falls over laughing because he he was so convinced by then. They tried everything. Hagar, you know, one day Sarah comes and says, Abraham, it's obviously not going to happen through me, so take my beautiful 25-year-old maid and sleep with her, and maybe God will rise up a son through us, through Hagar, and being the dutiful husband that Abraham was, he goes, yes, dear. And Ishmael was the result of that, you know. So they weren't perfect in faith by any shape or form, but 25 years later, Isaac turned up. And there's a really good uh, thing for us to remember there is through faith and patience. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says, By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And I read that and I wonder whether the author of Hebrews actually ever read the book of Genesis. Because when you read the story, yeah, okay, she was kind of faithful but not faithful over the process of time. But I love the fact that the Bible reports it all, warts and all, because I can identify with it, because I'm just as much a fickle in faith at various times as everybody else is. And I read about the Old Testament characters, and I'm so glad that's in there. I can imagine them sitting in heaven and going, do we have to record all of this stuff? Do we have to record the times where I laughed? 
and I wasn't full of faith. Uh, you know, do we have to record the time where Noah got drunk and was naked in his tent? Do we have to record all of this stuff? And God goes, yes. Why? Because he knows people and he wants us to be able to identify with the stories of other people who are just as fallible as the rest of us. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Now, Paul didn't know how many promises God had made. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul said, for no matter how many promises God has made. The problem for Paul was he didn't have Google. But we do, and so we know that there are 5,467 promises in the Bible. Paul didn't know how many there were, but one thing he did know was that they are yes in Christ And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Let me just finish up by explaining to you what Paul is talking about here, because there's wonderful truth about the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises to us. Think about it for a moment, church. The promises of God, 5,467 of them. In other words, no matter what you face in life, you can find a promise in the Word of God that fits your situation and you can hold on to that, and you can pray into that, and through faith and patience and hope, you can move forward believing God that eventually, in some way, He is going to fulfill that promise to you. The Bible says that every promise God has made is yes in Christ. The word yes, what a wonderful word that is. It is an emphatic affirmation, yes, That promise is yes because of Jesus. And then he finishes off and he says, and so through him the amen is spoken to us for the glory of God. What does that mean? Amen. It's a word we use, isn't it? It's a word that we use when we pray. But it means more than, oh gee, look, I've just finished my prayer. You know, because we say in Jesus' name, amen. Oh good, we're finished. No, amen actually is a very powerful word. In the Amplified, uh, it it interprets it, so let it be, or let it be so. It's it's an emphatic declaration. It literally means, it's an ancient Hebrew word, it means most assuredly, let it happen, but the original Hebrew word amen meant God of faithfulness. God is faithful. And so think about that. When you pray a prayer... Your last declaration is God is faithful. So everything you've just prayed, that promise you've prayed into, everything you've just asked that's according to His Word, you finish off with this affirmation that says, because God is faithful, everything I've prayed is going to happen. God is faithful. Think about that in future. When you say amen, it's not, oh, amen. No, oh, no, we can, we can open our eyes and look around. Oh, good, we finally finished that prayer. Uh, that's what amen means. No, 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 no. Everything you've just prayed. If it's according to the promises of God, it's yes. If it's, if it's according to the promises of God, it's amen. Amen. God is faithful. God is faithful. Lord, I'm being tempted. Will you provide a way out for me? Yes. God is faithful. Lord, I've given into temptation. Will you forgive me? Yes. God is faithful. Lord, I'm facing a really difficult time. Will you deliver me? Yes. God is faithful. Lord, you've given me a promise. Will you fulfill it? Yes. God is faithful. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. God is faithful. Praise the Lord. Why don't we put our hands together and give the Lord praise? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's just close our eyes for a moment, church, shall we?
Let's allow his presence and his peace to grip our hearts and our lives, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word this morning, Lord God. You are faithful to free us and to forgive us. You are faithful to fulfill your promise to us. You are faithful to forgive and to cleanse us, to purge us from all unrighteousness. Lord, these wonderful truths, who we are in you. Thank you, Lord God. May your word soak deep into our hearts and minds and change and transform our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Just while you're, you're bowed in his presence, I just want to give a moment this morning for anyone who is sitting in this place today and you've, uh, you've either never made a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ or you did once but you kind of drifted away and today you want to make an affirmation that you want to be a follower of his. While no one's looking around, if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand where you are. By the raising of your hand, you're making a declaration. God bless you there. Anybody else like to join this lady this morning? You're saying, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus Christ. I'll make this declaration today to follow Jesus. Anyone else? Just raise your hand now. God bless you. I see you over there as well. That's great. Two people. Anyone else at all? Okay. All right, let's pray this prayer together. And I want everyone to pray this prayer, but the two people you just raised your hand, make this prayer your own. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of forgiveness and salvation through your Son, Jesus. I believe on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins. I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Come into my life. Wash me clean and fill me with your presence. From this day on, I will walk with you and look to you in your name. Amen. You are faithful. It's wonderful. Yeah, you can clap. That's, that's not a problem.